Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, I'm joined by Azran Osman Rami. Based in Kuala Lumpur, Azran is an author, professor, and serial entrepreneur who is currently the founding CEO of digital health firm Naluri. Welcome to Data Billion, Azran. Thanks for having me, Joe. So one of the things that I find remarkable about your work is that you have found a way to see something different in the Asian market. Over and over again, you've seen things that are different that have made those executives in North America not quite able to compete there. What do you see generally in Asia that makes it a different market that is missed by most North American executives? Well, sure. Let me address that uh, in two ways. One is understanding the mass market segments and also understanding emerging markets uh, as an economy. And, and maybe allow me to illustrate this with some examples. In the long-haul airline industry, there are global leaders that we're mostly familiar with, like British Airways, Emirates, and Singapore Airlines. Yet, in this capital-intensive and scale-driven business, the long-haul airline that I started AirAsia X, we could operate at one-third the unit cost of Singapore Airlines, which was then the most cost-efficient long-haul carrier. And we did this by challenging established industry norms, operating at 18 hours a day of aircraft utilization when someone like Singapore Airlines would operate at about 13 hours. And we challenged the practice that all flights must depart and arrive at the same time seven days a week. Now, that's going to be important for regular business travelers. But if you're solely focused on leisure travelers that are price sensitive, that might only fly once a year, maybe once in a lifetime, they don't value having convenient schedules of late night departures, arriving at 6 a.m. the next day, time to start your business day, the same time every week. So by understanding that the mass market consumers have different needs and priorities than how the existing industry leaders uh, look at things and they design their own service delivery based on uh, the different parameters or the different things that their customer segments value. And a lot more other examples uh, that we can get into in terms of iFlix versus Netflix, for example. One of the things that you uh, saw in the airline market that had never really uh, allowed for there to be a mass market long haul was this assumption that the that the majority of revenue would have to come from business travelers, that there was this really strong catering to the business traveler, and the market that you saw was quite different, and that in challenging that assumption was really key to unlocking this uh, this new market. It wasn't really about the business traveler. Indeed. In, in fact, you know, sometimes that's where when we think about data, right? Uh, uh, if we had started AirAsia X with market research that asks potential customer, which city would you like AirAsia X to fly to? London, for example, would be top on that list. And even if you looked at historical passenger traffic from Kuala Lumpur, London would be among the highest long-haul destinations. Now, a city like Chengdu in the Sichuan province of China would not even surface right in the top 25 cities desired by consumers. Yet, our London route generated one of the biggest losses and Chengdu became one of the most profitable routes. 
So this again highlights, right? You know, when you ask customers what they want, it may not always be as insightful, and neither is looking at historical data of passenger travel, but instead, right, factors like understanding relative market share, which are crucial to determining route profitability, because an airline's ability to set prices is driven by whether you have a higher market share and so you can set price rather than being a price taker if you've got a small market share. Or in the case of Chengdu, uh, there may be other factors that indicate a lot of latent demand that get unlocked because we were the first to offer a direct flight from that city of over 20 million to Southeast Asia. So it's not about looking at the traditional data sets uh, that you know industry analysts look at, but trying to understand different factors that can uh, you know drive new demand. So that's really fascinating. There are, there are many studies that say that customers don't necessarily always know what they want. And uh, there have been famous quotes said by people like Henry Ford, you know, if you ask people what they want, they'd want a faster buggy and not a car. How did you make a decision around a city like Chengdu? If the data from people isn't there, what data did you use? Well, you know, first, it's understanding um, population segments, Uh, you know, 20 million people in a landlocked city in the western province of China, who've reached a certain GDP per capita or um, you know, in, in terms of their ability to have discretionary income and, and travel and tourism starts to be one of the first things that people would want to spend um, when, when they've got discretionary income. Um, and they have very limited connectivity to a place like Southeast Asia, which, you know, obviously we have our tropical islands, our rainforests, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, shopping destinations like Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, Phuket, etc. Um and so it's not necessarily about what are past passenger traffic, but understanding what could drive future demand. And in this case, really understanding the uh, you know, demographic potential that was emerging out of this new city in China. And that was somewhat the same model that you followed in your creation of the company iFlex, something that was really specifically catered to a, a non-industrialized type of society. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So when we launched iFlix in 2015, interestingly, over 100 investors rejected us because they said, a few guys in Kuala Lumpur, you don't stand a chance to compete against a global giant like Netflix, who was so dominant in video streaming in 190 countries with over 100 million subscribers. But the emerging markets in Southeast Asia, 80% of the population here don't speak any English. They don't watch Western shows from Hollywood. They don't have credit cards or e-wallets for payment. And they don't even have high-speed broadband connections to stream content. So iFlix scale to 20 million users in 20 countries in our first three years because we address these specific accessibility and affordability issues for emerging markets consumers. And also, I think, building a brand that's locally relevant in Indonesia, as it is in Myanmar or Vietnam and Bangladesh, you know, really connecting to consumers at a local level where they believe that the brand uh, speaks to them uh, culturally. We sort of adapt to the infrastructure and uh, demographic and, and you know economic constraints of this mass market population, but also really understanding language and culture and creating locally relevant brands. 
it's tapping into individualized, really massive markets that don't necessarily have the technical infrastructure that some of the more established, let's say, North American and Western European markets do. And is that kind of a, a, a hallmark of how you look at the market, trying to think about a different kind of customer in an underdeveloped or an undeveloped market? And, and what is different fundamentally about those kinds of markets? Well, I think in these markets, it's it's not about trying to look at past historical trends. And I think the challenge that most data analysts face is that they tend to use data sets from within their industry, right? Usually because that's what decision makers are familiar with. That's how their boards and investors think. And, and they look for comparables. But breakthrough ideas and innovations here requires us to look at businesses and industries differently, right? So I try to study uh, maybe two things, right? Number one, uh, from other industries. So how are consumer behaviors changing in other industries, um, but looking for patterns and, and innovations from, from other ideas? And I think the second data point for me is I try to look for ideas from observing customer behaviors that might indicate pain points that even they may not be consciously off, right? So for example, if I go back to aviation, right? And Joe, I know it might be a long time since most of us have been on an airplane, airplane but if you rem- <laughs> remember boarding a flight, right? And if you had to sit in an economy class seat, what's the first thing you do the moment you sit in your economy class seat? You grab an armrest and you, you hoard it to make sure the person next to you doesn't take it. Well, okay, now what if I told you that subconsciously, actually the first thing you do before you grab that unrest, uh, armrest is that you hope and pray nobody comes and sits next to you so that you can have more space and, and ideally even you'll hit the jet jackpot, you know, if you had all three seats in a row, right? Absolutely. If we were to ask customers, they're not going to bring this up, but we notice because we, we're passengers too, right? And we notice this behavior. And so we realize, huh, hang on a second, because on average with international flights, they're only about 80% full, which means 20% of seats are empty. But you don't know beforehand which flights will have extra empty seats because um, there might be people buying last-minute seats and those last-minute seats are usually at a very high price. So we became the first airline in the world to come up with the idea of an empty seat option, right? It's like a financial option, right? Where you pay a small fee, dynamically priced, right? For a chance, not a guarantee, to get, for example, all three seats in a row. So that on a long haul flight, right, like an eight hour flight transatlantic, uh, you'll be able to stretch out much more comfortably. That's an example of a data point uh, from observation and looking for pain points rather than research and asking customers, you know, what they want or don't want. I think this is fascinating, right? So we're living in an age in which people are really spending a lot of energy and money, frankly, on following digital footprints, right? What are the breadcrumbs that people leave behind? And much of what you're talking about is not really about big data or complex analytics. It's about simple observation. How do you find the right balance between, you know, a hardcore quantitative analysis and simple observation and making some of these really big decisions? Well, I think our philosophy is you're never going to learn at the analysis stage, but we only learn when we try to put into practice. So I'm a big believer in experimentation 
And mm-hmm. I keep telling my teams, you know what, every week we've got to run at least one experiment and we've got to have this philosophy that seven out of eight or seven or eight out of ten things that we try will fail. And we're going to get comfortable with that. But every time it doesn't work, let's learn why and we adjust and we try again. And it's that willingness to experiment and collect very quick data and iterate multiple times to get those insights coming up. So I'm a believer that you know the grand ideas don't come from a lot of deep analysis or strategic offsites and creative brainstorming sessions, but by just rolling up our sleeves, trying it, and figuring out which ones work and which ones don't. Yeah, that's fascinating. And um, this idea that you describe around failure is really an important uh, foundational element in many of the most important kind of uh, advancements that we've had in the past years. Um, so you've got you've got one example here around kind of seats. I think that you know it's safe to say that if you if that experiment hadn't worked, you would have tried something else. What are what are some other examples of experiments that you've done, and what are some interesting failures that the listeners might not know about? Okay, so um, two thousand eight. Right, Let, let's stick to um, the same. Um, uh, airline example. We thought we would be the first low-cost airline to have full in-seat entertainment systems on on the back of every economy class seats, and and we spent a lot of money uh, to install this. Where you know you have latest you know digital touchscreen technology. You can choose whatever uh, you know food or beverage that you want and click on it. Swipe your card. The order goes straight to the galley. You can watch a number of movies. But as much as we thought the convenience of ordering your meals instead of waiting for your flight attendant to come down with the, uh, with the trolley, the experience turned out to be terrible for the consumer because what we now learn is that people want instant gratification, right? If I order something, I want it now. I don't want to wait 15, 20 minutes. But the problem now is, of course, people are ordering at different times, right? So for the poor flight attendant, you know, 13F wants a Coke and then 42G wants fried rice and then back to 21H who wants a hamburger and then, you know, 32A wants something else and it becomes incredibly chaotic. So it was a terrible experience for the customers, horrible experience for the flight attendants. And so we, we ended up having to scrap the entire system. It was a $12 million write-off. Wow. Um, but here's the interesting thing, right? Sometimes even in disasters, there are silver linings because what we realized once we had to remove all this in-flight entertainment systems, the same systems that you would find on Emirates or, you know, um, Cathay Pacific or Singapore Airlines, we suddenly discovered the plane became two tons lighter. (laughs) So that in-flight entertainment system actually has a lot of weight because it's not just the TV screens, but they're kilometer-long cables for power supply, for signal servers. You remove all of that. And two tons is a significant amount of fuel savings advantage, right? You need less fuel to burn when the plane is is lighter. So uh, it became an, an advantage for us. I, I think that this is a really fascinating story. And in many respects, your analytics model is quite different from that used by other people. So many people would tell you, get the data, 
do the analytics, make a recommendation, and then act accordingly. And in some respects, what you're suggesting is you have this idea in in your book, 30 Days and 30 Years, you highlight this kind of critical role of curiosity. And you say, you know, you got to see what doesn't look right. Why does it happen? And it seems like your approach is really curiosity and observation led, followed by experimentation, followed by analytics that discover whether or not it worked, and then take corrective action. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Well, so so the central idea central idea of my thirty days and thirty years book is that the world right has never seen a faster and rapidly changing pace, and yet there will be no time in the future when it will be as slow as it is today. Mm-hmm. And so that means you know traditional annual planning cycles, you know, 12-month plans and budgets and annual performance appraisals and even New Year resolutions are no longer relevant because things are going to change at an unpredictable and unimaginable ways in, in a matter of weeks. And of course, we all saw that with 2020 with this pandemic, right? So what we used to do in 12 months, we need to move faster. And that's why I advocate a 30-day sprint cycle, right? Moving fast um, and, and learning quickly. But here's the thing, right? If you move fast without any form of direction, you could run the risk of running around in circles. So I also think it's important to have another time horizon, and I chose 30 years because with that time scale, you let go of today's constraints on budget, on technology limitations and regulations. And so when we think about what do we want to impact our consumers positively in 30 years' time, that becomes our core purpose uh, that become the way we navigate and help us make weekly decisions and, and priorities, uh, you know, day in and day out. And so, you know, for me, it's balancing between a lot of the rapid, you know, curious uh, experimentation, but also being anchored on, you know, the bigger purpose of, you know, why, uh, you know, we, we set out to do what we do. In your current firm, um, Naluri, you have taken on something that's much more hardcore digital, right? Lots more data, lots more digitization. Have you found that this model that you're suggesting is easier or harder uh, when you have more data and more things to look at and more analysis to be done uh, to assess things over 30-day sprints and 30-year horizons? Well, so this is also an interesting one because healthcare is very regulated and, and very structured. And I think it's very important for us to first identify the problems, right? So not so much, uh, you know, the data patterns or, or ideas, but first, are we tackling the right problems? And how do we change healthcare delivery from today's siloed specialization, whether, you know, on a telemedicine platform or at a hospital, you know, you tend to see specialists, right? A cardiologist looks at your heart, a gastroenterologist looks at your gut, or a psychologist looks at your mental health. But today, chronic conditions are deeply interrelated. And this is where we start to find patterns, right? Strong correlations between diabetes and depression, between anxiety and heart diseases. Um, and so how do we then define a new coordinated multidisciplinary uh, care model? And lastly, the problem we wanted to tackle is, um, you know, today what frustrates the payers of the industry, right, either insurance companies or corporate employers themselves, is they're paying more and more every year uh, for healthcare services, and yet more and more of their employees or insurance uh, customers are getting more sick. Because healthcare is very much fee-based, right? You pay fees for consultations, prescriptions, and treatments. 
But what if we could move it towards being outcomes-based, where you get rewarded if you make someone successfully healthier? But this requires deep data models to predict healthcare outcomes based on the small behavioral uh, changes that you can uh, get patients to adopt uh, today. And so it is on one hand balancing between initial data sets, you know, kind of creating these hypotheses of um, tackling these problems in a different way from, from incumbents, but in that process learning to collect a lot of data and, and you know, build uh, deeper uh, prediction models. There's something really interesting as you talk that uh, is about this balance between the instinctive understanding of what people need and the data that's required to do the deep analytics about whether or not it's working. How do you think about that balance between instinct, intuition, and data to support your conclusions? Well, um, in, in our experience, and maybe that's also why we chose to be what we call human-led rather than sort of a, a pure AI model and all these chatbots that a lot of people do, because uh, when, when it comes to human behaviors, it's not about you know throwing in a thousand variables and somehow there's a black box formula that says you know this is the um, predicted output. But instead, if we can uh, deconstruct you know the one thousand small variables into uh, structures or or what we would call intermediate indices that um, professionals, let's say psychologists or doctors, can understand, and then with these more simpler micro models, the humans themselves can um, help the machines learn. Because uh, you know, let's say the machine says, oh, "I think this, you know, based on this input, uh, this particular uh, user of Nullary has a low resilience score." For example, and the uh, the um, the healthcare professional might say, "No, I disagree. I can click one button and override that and and give it, give it sort of my human interpretation, and that then allows the computer to learn because that's that kind of um, human uh, recalibration, uh, if you will. And I think we've taken that approach because you know solving or you know building models that predict human behaviors is incredibly complex. And certainly, as a small start, we're not going to get it right in the first few years. Um, but if we put in professionals to sort of guide the learning process, uh, we're going to stand a better chance at you know building useful models uh, in, in a much shorter time period. Yeah, in some respects, you've just defined a, um, a supervised learning model yes. and um, and called it human-led. Um, uh, some people at Click call that augmented intelligence, right? This idea that humans and, and machines working together is way better than machines or humans working separately. Um, and so one of the things that I'm interested in as I uh, hear your story is um, how do you um, – think and come up with these ideas. So you have an interesting background. You are a uh, triathlete and um, you've, you've, you've kind of spoken publicly about, you know, how it's helped you to gain some mental resilience and, and do some of your best thinking or mm-hmm. do you, are you the type of person that goes out for a, a, a 50 kilometer bicycle ride and starts to think of some of your best ideas? Well, you know, I guess triathlons, right, and particularly Ironman triathlons, it's something that means a lot to me. And I think it reminds me that while our minds can be our most powerful strength, 
they can also be our biggest limiting factor, right? So, for example, when most people think, huh, an Ironman triathlon that involves four kilometers of swimming, right, or 2.4 miles, cycling 180 kilometers or 112 miles, and then running a 42-kilometer marathon all in one day, and they think it's insane. Well, because our brains prefer stability and reliability and predictability, it doesn't like anything that's unfamiliar. So if you've never done it before, your brain is already telling you you cannot do it, right? And, and likewise, even if you start when you are sort of 10 hours into an Ironman and you still have many kilometers left ahead of you, our mind gives up first, right? The brain tends to sound the alarm when we're only about 60 to 65% of our maximum physical capacity because it's in this self-preservation mode. But when we train, we can actually learn how do we push this to reach at least 80% of our physical limits. And I think there that these lessons that are also applicable in, in business and in life, right? Where we need to be aware of our unconscious biases, right? When we think we cannot do something or we think, oh, it's time to quit. And so for me, when I think about my training sessions, I, I have different types of workouts. So for the more intense and fast-paced workouts, my mind is probably singularly focused and I'm very clear about executing that and I just clear my mind of everything else. But when I'm on that slower pace workout, a four to six hour bike ride or a two hour run, those are definitely great moments to think about creative thoughts because, you know, I need it to distract the mind from the pain and soreness of uh, going on and on. <laughs> so as we wrap up this conversation, I wonder if you could leave us with a few thoughts about a few things in the world that you think are fundamentally being changed by, by data. Wow. Ooh, okay. So um, I guess if I only had three uh, takeaways, it would be communication, uh, collaboration, and customization. So with communication, right, especially across language and cultural borders, right, whether through video calls like Zoom today or text messaging and emails, we often misunderstand the other person's intent or emotions. But with the proliferation of data, right, we can apply natural language processing to analyze text messages instantly, uh, detect human emotions from microfacial expressions, and then the tone, temper, and valence from audio speech to be much more accurate about the emotion and intention of the person that we are um, trying to communicate with. Um, with collaboration, I think data allows us to create uh, breakthrough collaboration opportunities as we overcome, you know, typically things that hinder collaboration are different protocols, you know, uh, especially with security and trust, uh, billing and payment, you know, language and terminology. Um, but these are ways that we can overcome these barriers and, and collaborate more. And, and third, I guess, lastly, uh, with customization, I think with a rich data set, we can start to really understand, you know, each individual customer or prospective employee or employer or investor or an investee company or any other party, right? Their preferences, their values, their priorities. And how do we tailor our offerings in a way that will connect much more than using a general broadcast communications means, right? An advertisement or a resume or a standard investment pitch deck or a proposal. But, you know, how do we customize it so that it feels very relevant uh, to our audience? So those would be my three things in terms of communication, collaboration, and, and customization. So I'm, I'm very excited about, uh, um, you know, what the future holds. 
So, Azran, how can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Well, I guess they can Google Azran or Azran Osman Rani or Nellory or find me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's where I'm most active or on my website, azranosmanrani.com. Well, Azran, it's been a tremendous pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Joe. Azran Osman Rani is an author, professor, and serial entrepreneur who is currently founding CEO of the digital health firm Nellory. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Want to innovate? Get used to failure. Think creatively and boldly and use data to guide you, not control you. Tap into that part of you that's just beyond your brain giving up. Thank you, Azran Osman Rani, for helping us to get ourselves in a state of mind to anticipate what's next.